Thank you so much, Joe. Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, great. We are, we're almost through on this uh, summer series. My topic for today is forgiveness, not anger. And I want to start with a fairly honest, open question. What makes your blood boil? What is it that makes you angry? And I know it's not always a great holy thing to think about at church on a Sunday morning, but just for a moment, what is that thing? Not being dramatic, but I nearly died yesterday and was very angry when I was driving towards my new house. Come on, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, God. Um, congrats to Bonnie and Robbie as well, who've also just successfully managed to move into their new house. So there is a God. If there is no other proof in the world, it's the fact that young couples have managed to buy houses in Bristol. That is proof that God is real. Okay, so I'm driving towards my new house nearby here, and a car is on the other side of the road facing the same direction as me, and they're nudging out. I know they want to pull out, but they stop. And I'm like, fine, that means that they've seen me. I was wrong. They didn't see me. And so they accelerate off. And to say that they nearly pulled straight into the side of me was an understatement. Horn on. What are you doing? I was, I absolutely went from zero to a hundred very quickly. I didn't curse. I didn't do anything crazy. I just got very angry and they sped off into the distance. Road rage is a real thing. I can't think of, you know, Maddie will testify that I don't get angry, but when I'm driving, if someone does something stupid, You'd better believe that I can very quickly become angry. But there might be one thing that I have seen cause anger more than road rage. Bradley, can we have the next slide? And it is the wonderful world of Monopoly. Have you ever been involved in a game of Monopoly which, which ended with anger? Hands up. Ever been involved? Have you ever been the person to flip the table and leave. Hands up. Have you ever done that? Yeah, I know there's a few of you. Bonnie, I'm, I'm, she takes the board games very seriously. That's fine. Monopoly, unlike maybe any other game, is able to uh, teach you certain skills, certain life skills. Monopoly recently released this campaign. Bradley, can you show us the next slide? This was fantastic. Monopoly for learning how to calm down. Let's see the next one. For learning to let go. Do you recognize any of these facial expressions? Have you ever pulled them? Have you ever seen your kids or your spouse or significant friend do this? Let's see the next one. Um, also learning to let go. The, the raw emotion on the face here. This is something that I think only Monopoly is capable of. Next. For learning to cope with losing. These are all really important life skills. I totally get this. And then the last but not least for dealing with a setback. That is a face that could turn you to stone. That is actually quite terrifying. And I feel like she's not coming back from that for like a while. I think she might be there for the week or the month. I, th I think that is a bad way to be. Monopoly does have this reputation. It teaches forgiveness among several other things. My family actually has a mixed relationship with Monopoly. My mum and dad, it turns out, don't play it together. I never grew up playing it as a family, and that's because my mum learned a few things about my dad. When he plays Monopoly, he takes it very seriously. And I was like, that's fine. Maddie and I will break the generational curse of not playing Monopoly in our house. We have played together once. Once. And you know how much I love board games. We played together once. And I was disputing a house rule that I didn't like and I didn't get on with. It was benefiting Maddie. It was really not working out for me. And I was like, I don't like this rule. We can't do this anymore. I was like, you can't change the rules halfway through a game. And I agree with that generally. But it was really, really hurting my chances at winning Monopoly. And I said, no, we can't do this. 
And so we don't play Monopoly. So I quite like Monopoly. If anyone would like to play Monopoly with me, I am currently open and available seeking Monopoly friends. I don't have many that will play with me. Oh, so I had to play Graham. Thank you, Graham. Okay, great. Sold to the highest bidder, Graham. Okay. Tuesday, I'm free. Um, I once, a couple of years ago, had to send an apology to my younger brother, Benjamin. And that was because I felt guilt-stricken over the fact that when we went on a holiday when I was 10 years old, Benjamin and I were playing Monopoly. He went to the bathroom while it was my role. I was a mere seven spaces away from free parking, which was loaded. What number did I happen to roll while he was out of the room? A seven. Was that the only time that that happened in the game? No, it wasn't. And I rolled seven multiple times. And I said, Ben, I'm so sorry. That famous game when we were in Cornwall and it was raining because it's England and we had to play Monopoly all the time, I was cheating horribly. Do you know what he said? That's fine, I did the same thing. And I was like, are you kidding me? Both of us. No wonder the game went on forever. We kept on landing on free parking. We just had this endless supply of cash and neither of us were getting very angry about it. But Monopoly, I've got a very, very mixed relationship with it. And I love the idea. I I love thinking about forgiveness just from a kind of an abstract or an idea point of view. And I've spent lots of time thinking and planning this talk. And I've developed a little something that I want to patent. And I'm going to do a TED talk on it one day. But you here get the first round of it. And I'm going to call it the forgiveness matrix. Bradley, can we see this? I want you to go, ooh. Okay, this is the forgiveness matrix. I was looking up definitions of forgiveness, how the world, how society, how science thinks about forgiveness. And three major themes kept coming up. And I really think that the Bible uh, has a lot to say on forgiveness, probably more than maybe most other subjects. And we're going to be talking about forgiveness today. But there are these three steps that need to be taken to achieve what I would say is a whole, you know, full-blown forgiveness. And what we're aiming for really is what the Bible would describe as a situation of peace. We are striving for peace in ourselves, in our relationships with our friends and families and co-workers, peace within the world on a global scale, within our communities and local places at work. We are striving for peace, and that can only happen when these three things take place. And so uh, we'll come back to this later. But what I want to say, uh, Bradley, can we just see the next slide, which I think should summarize this for us? Um, oh, let's skip that one, actually. That's a, a little bit more of a detailed view. That, that can go in the appendix. You can see that one later. Forgiveness does these three things. Forgiveness pays a debt. Forgiveness pardons guilt. And forgiveness pacifies anger. And we need all three of these areas, or we can strive towards all three of these areas to find peace when someone has done something to wrong us, when we have wronged somebody else, when we see something in the world that is unjust. We are always striving for peace. And I believe that the Bible gives us this model through teachings, through stories of how we can achieve peace for ourselves, for our relationships. And I believe that it involves these three things. So, If you fall asleep at this point, you have heard the main bit of the talk, so that's fine. However, we are going to delve really quickly into these three areas to see what the Bible says. So let's just take a look at forgiveness pays a debt. I want everyone to repeat this after me. Forgiveness pays a debt. I will be doing this just to check that you are awake. A basic lesson that we can all do with learning really early on in life is that our actions have consequences. 
right? This is something that parents try to teach kids, friends who have unruly friends try to teach them. The things that you do have consequences. The Bible is full of advice which supports this idea that a wrong action has a consequence that must be dealt with. On a spiritual level, if you look at Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says this, for the wages of our wrong actions are death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so really early on, there is this important concept that the things that we do have a spiritual, long-lasting consequence. That is a biblical principle. But then how do we work this out in real life? Well, in the Old Testament, there was a very unique way of looking at this. Exodus chapter 21 has this very famous, well-quoted and often used um, in all of society, this piece of advice. If there is a serious injury or someone hurts your feelings while playing Monopoly, you are to take life for life. I I know that that escalated real quick, didn't it? You are to take life for life. Eye for eye. What's the next one? Tooth for tooth. We know this. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. Foot for foot. Burn for burn. Wound for wound. Bruise for bruise. This was set about in the Old Testament at a time where they really, really needed this. Thousands of years ago, if you existed in the same context as where this law was given, if somebody wronged you, things escalated very, very quickly. You steal my sheep, I will kill your shepherds. You killed my shepherds, I will murder your whole family. You murdered my whole family, I will set your whole village ablaze. It would just... absolutely spiral out of control. Things just magnified until there was nothing left. That was a very normal practice that actually it wasn't about repaying an equal amount, but going one up. And so in this context, the law gives protection and it says, no, 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 you are going to repay and there will be justice, but you will not go above or beyond what has been done to you. And so even then, thousands of years ago, God speaking into this context, he says, the way that you're trying to forgive people by repaying and some, no, that's not the way that we're going to do this. You will repay, but you will stop once you have reached that level. And then what we see in the New Testament is Jesus takes this one step further and we see a sort of incline of what forgiveness looks like. And we're still on this, uh, it'd be called a, a theology of trajectory. So it starts in one place and it maps throughout the Old Testament. Jesus takes it further and we have to try and stay on this trajectory. In Matthew 5, he says, you have heard it said, and he quotes, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. We've all heard this, right? Turn your cheek. That is a phrase that is used in popular culture, in churches. It's a very common idea. But how does this stack up with God at one point saying, well, repay evil for evil, and then Jesus saying, turn the other cheek? What we have really is this biblical concept, and it's a really difficult tension for us to manage, and it's the balance of justice and mercy. Justice is what the Old Testament was very concerned with when they gave this law. A wrong action has a consequence and must be settled. A debt must be paid. But then when Jesus comes, he says, you need to try and aim for the harder thing, mercy. So in both contexts, someone who does something wrong receives either justice or mercy, but never injustice. And this is a very important thing for us here this morning that we are to be people of either justice or mercy, but never 
injustice. If someone wrongs you, I'm not giving you permission to act against them, but maybe to allow the local authorities or other people to administer justice. We should be people of justice. And when justice cannot happen, and sometimes in addition to it, we must be people of mercy. This is the instruction that Jesus has set for us, and we must do it. And to come back to Monopoly just one more time, there is an example here that we see in the board game where this is demonstrated for us. When you land on someone's property and they shout that famous word, rent, finally, you owe me some money, you have caused an offense. You've landed on their property. And I don't know what real life scenario is happening here, whether you've like bummed a place there and then you need to, you know, you're trying to sneak out the door in the morning and the hotel guard's like, no, 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 I saw you, you owe me rent. I don't know what's happened here. But they, they ask you for rent. If you have the money to satisfy that, you pay them, the debt is cleared, that would be justice. There has been an action and a consequence. It has been resolved. There is justice. But there is another thing that can happen in Monopoly, and that's when you've been playing for a few hours, and you land on Mayfair with like two hotels somehow, and all of a sudden they're saying, you owe me 10,000 pounds, and you go, I have 100 because I just spent everything on houses. What do I do? And now this never happens in Monopoly, but Mercy, or turning the other cheek, would be the person who owns those hotels paying that fine actively on your behalf. What we normally do in the board game is we let it go. That person's bankrupted, none can happen, nothing more. But Mercy would look like the hotel owner saying, I will pay that amount on your behalf. That is Mercy. That is the biblical concept. Someone makes a payment to actively clear that debt. And we all know um, that the story of salvation, the story of, uh, of our faith, is a God who pays our debt, the things that we deserved, and he does that for us. He doesn't just let it slide. There is a paying of a debt. All of our wrong actions have consequences. They might be as simple as a broken window caused by a cricket ball or a football or it could be the lives that have been left traumatized by one single reckless decision in your family. But actions have consequences. And full forgiveness attempts always to try and resolve them. But it's not always possible. Let's move on to the next one. Forgiveness pardons guilt. Let's see that side up there if that's all right, Bradley. Forgiveness pardons guilt. Everyone say this, please. Forgiveness pardons guilt. The Bible makes it really clear, really, really clear in its many teachings on forgiveness that one of the aims is this beautiful concept of restoring relationships which are broken and to remove guilt from the person who committed the offense. This is something that is very countercultural. It's not very popular, but it's a very important idea. And this is true for ourselves, and it's true for the people that wrong us, that if we do not give way um, and we try to pardon that guilt, there are serious consequences for us. Matthew chapter 6 says this, If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, and if I mention the word sins and you don't know what that means, it's a wrong action, missing the mark. If, uh, if you do not forgive others their wrong actions, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Colossians 3 makes this point about our relationships with one another even more. Bear with each other. That sometimes more accurately describes our relationships to one another, doesn't it? Bear with each other, put up with one another, and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. 
This idea of removing guilt, and this is a very important thing, because actually when someone commits a wrong action, there is an internal uh, result of that. Uh, Regardless of whether they feel any remorse, obviously, or not, something has happened inside that person. When you commit a wrong action, some of us feel it very strongly over a small thing. That's why children can just burst into tears when all of a sudden they realize they've been caught. Sometimes you feel that guilt very strongly. Sometimes it takes a long time, but no matter your experiences of guilt, there is always a felt effect inside of you if you commit some sort of wrong action, and it can manifest itself in all sorts of ways. The Bible says we have to try and fix this, otherwise that person will rot and become bitter and resentful. We have to try and find a way to free this person. This was really kindly demonstrated to me when I was a teenager. Um, I was at Hill House Youth Camps, and some of our young people uh, have been there. Mikey has volunteered at two weeks this uh, summer, which is nuts, and is probably still recovering from it. And um, I, when I was a young teenager, I went to one of these summer camps, and the idea is that you, um, you obey these guidelines that they give you, and they set them out very clearly at the beginning of the week. Uh, without going into too much detail, I chose to not do that. And I broke one of these rules. I did something really stupid with a bunch of friends and I shouldn't have done it. And I thought we'd gotten away with it and we didn't. We got caught and I felt horrible. There was talk of the whole group being kicked off the camp, uh, of, of us not going to Butlins because that was going to be the reward that week, being sent home, uh, all sorts of stuff. And I was feeling absolutely horrible, not just for getting caught, but actually I feel like I'd let the team down who were trying to keep us safe and we had gone off the site and done something stupid. And, and it was really, really... Uh, it messed me up that week, uh, seeing the effect of the people who were trying to protect us and keep us safe. And so it wasn't just that they were feeling the consequences. I, as the wrongdoer, became really acutely aware that what I had done had upset people, caused all sorts of problems. I was feeling guilty. That was my, one of my early experiences of guilt. And I know I, and I have to use something trivial because it's not, it doesn't make sense to say anything more than that. But this, for me, as a young man, was a really important experience. And what was interesting was that the team uh, dealt with the consequences. They, they, they did that first thing we talked about. They paid the debt. They sorted out the thing that had gone wrong, and they carried out justice. I was peeling potatoes for like the whole of the next day. They came up with all sorts of creative things. But the debt was paid, but I still felt guilty. Can you, can you hear that? Can you understand that? The, the debt was paid, but I felt guilty. Some of you have, you understand what this means. You might have dealt with the consequences, but internally, something's still not right. And so a couple of days later, one of the officers, one of the leaders saw me, and they could, I'm, I'm normally a very happy, upbeat kind of person, and even as a young man. And they said, Matt, I know that this thing is weighing on you. I can li- we can literally see it. You probably aren't sleeping very well because it's a youth camp, but I can still see something's wrong here. And they said, Matt, we love you, we forgive you, you are free. And then they just sent me on my merry way. And I don't think this person really understood what that did for me, because that, for me, was this moment where I understood that actually the the offended have the power to release the offender from guilt. What an incredible truth to try and experience at a young age, that if you have been wronged, you, there is something in your, what you say and what you do. Uh, this works on a personal and a corporate level, but that your actions can help remove the guilt that the offender feels. And this is something that God wants us to try and do. The act of forgiveness has the unique ability to bring healing to the offender. This concept is completely offensive to a world obsessed with self-preservation and cancel culture. It makes no sense. 
And that is why stories of forgiveness are completely captivating. And when they are practiced in real life, they clearly demonstrate God's love in real terms. Finally, forgiveness pacifies anger. Everyone say this, please. Forgiveness pacifies anger. Ephesians 4 says this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as uh, in Christ, God has forgiven you. There is a really important distinction to make here. The title of my talk today is actually Forgiveness, Not Anger. This is really interesting, and I think that sometimes this slips into church, that anger is a sin. I would argue, based on the Bible, not just my own idea, but that the Bible makes it clear that anger is not a sin. Anger is not a sin. Look at this. At the beginning of Ephesians 4, verse 26, it says, In your anger, do not sin. So therefore, it is possible to be angry and not sin. This is really, really important for us. We see it throughout the Bible as well. The book of Job, chapter 1, right at the beginning, a story is told, whether it was historical or a piece of wisdom literature, we don't know, but a story is told of a man who has everything that could go wrong in his life goes wrong. If there was ever someone with a right to be angry, it was Job. And the Bible says this in verse 22 of that opening chapter. In all of this, summarizing his anger, his frustration, his venting, his complaining, in all of this, Job did not sin. He didn't sin. And I think the suggestion from the wider context there is that he did not curse God, he did not curse others, and he did not act maliciously towards anyone as a result of being angry. But he felt the full weight of that grief. He processed it, he cried, he shouted, he got angry, he let it hit him. He didn't suppress it. There's the British thing. I'm going to deal with this later. He let it hit him like a bus. And he was angry, but he did not sin. This is a very healthy way of dealing with things that when it goes wrong. Genesis 4 verse 7, God is speaking to Cain, who is feeling very angry about his relationship with his brother. And speaking about Cain's anger, God says, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What an interesting idea. Anger is coming for you. It wants you. If the devil wants to trip you up today, it's to make you think that you can be angry and give full vent to it. I think social media is fueling this. TV, a whole bunch of stuff is saying that if you're angry, you need to really let them have it. It's that Old Testament style. I'm going to give it back to you and some. That's the culture that we live in today. And the Bible says you must control your anger. Feel your anger. Let it you know, help you to process things. Anger is a God-given emotion. And a lot of good things in life have come from anger. A lot of the justice movements that we have seen in the last few years have come because people are angry about people not being treated right, being paid enough, not having equal status. And if it wasn't for anger, we wouldn't have seen that progress. Anger is a godly thing but you must control it. Do not let it take over. And so in summary, forgiveness helps pacify the anger that the offended can feel, that we must deal with ourselves when we are wronged. 
Forgiveness is a means of dealing with the fallout of of evil. It extends freedom to the offender and it is a remedy to anger. It moves us from chaos to peace. Forgiveness is like the cast on a broken limb, which stops things from getting worse and it allows healing to take place. This is actually confirmed by research. I'm just bringing it into land here, but uh, Bradley, can we just see this uh, here? There was a a paper produced just a few years back, and it actually researched the impact of someone's ability to be forgiving and what the consequences were on their life. And it says this, lower levels of forgiveness, so someone who finds it hard and doesn't forgive, it uniquely predicted worse mental and physical health. How nuts is that? Someone's inability to forgive can have mental and physical consequences that you will feel. And let's look at the next one, just a couple of key findings. Associations between stress and mental health were weaker for persons exhibiting more forgiveness. So the opposite is true, that actually people who forgive are more likely to have less stress, less anxiety, and better mental health. And then finally, this last one, developing a more forgiving coping style may help minimize stress-related disorders. So there you go. If you want to improve your physical and mental health, become a forgiving person. Forgiveness is one of the most counter-cultural actions that we can pursue. In a world that is obsessed with individualism, with cancelling people as soon as they mess up, and in a world which glorifies anger, the simple and profound act of forgiving others requires self-control, love, justice, and mercy. And we need God's help to do it. But we and those around us will experience a lot more peace if we can do it. Amen? Amen. Let's just look lastly at this, um, this final thing. Just as a reminder, we need to pursue all three of these areas. Forgiveness is this thing that we are aiming for. And I just wanted to say that in my life, I have sometimes struggled with the idea of forgiveness because I cannot achieve all three things. What if the person that wronged you isn't speaking to you? What if they've gotten away with it and justice can't happen? What if the consequences can't be dealt with? That's fine. What the Bible says is you are aiming for these three things. Where possible, try to pay the debt. Try to find inner healing and forgiveness. Try to reconcile with the person that wronged you. We are aiming for these things, but it's just, if you can't do all of them, don't give up altogether, church. If you can do one of these things, do it, and do it today. If you have been hurt, you have been wronged. If you have wronged someone else, Holy Spirit, would you show us, help us to take steps forward so that we can move towards peace, so that we can move towards peace. I'm going to pray for us as we close. Father God, we thank you uh, for this incredible idea of forgiveness. Lord, we thank you that your word just gives us really practical advice on how to maintain our personal relationships, how to look after ourselves. And Lord, we just see this really spiritual principle, forgiveness. And Lord, we, we acknowledge today that we stand here and you offer all of us forgiveness for the wrong things that we have done. And God, you don't ask us to do something that you don't model yourself. And so, Lord, we look at you and we say, Lord, thank you that you offer forgiveness for us. We recognize, Lord, that you have paid the debt for our wrongdoings, that Jesus himself carried that and he dealt with the consequences. God, we're so grateful. Lord, I pray now that as we, as we reflect, Holy Spirit, we invite you. Would you show us where we have been wronged, where we have wronged others? 
Lord, would you convict us of that? Show us, give us that indignation. Lord, help us to feel that anger. And God, would we do something about it? Would we pursue forgiveness, Lord, so that we can honor what Jesus has told us to do, so that we can show the world what love really looks like? Lord, help us to be a forgiving people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.